Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raf. What is going on? Uh, what's going on? Um, I was just admiring my uh, touch bar yet again. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Do you touch it a lot? I touch. I was touching it. I was touching the waveform of um, the waveform of this audio. It's a very intimate experience. But it, I, I kind of, I kind of like physical buttons. Do you, do you miss them when you want to raise the brightness or the volume, and you hmm. kind of without looking, you know, like your fingers just know where the button is. You know, I find that like the pressure that I need to exert on a physical button, it's strenuous. It, it kind of yeah. exhausts. It exhausts. <laughs> <laughs> You're transcending your physical form. Yeah, I just, if there was only a way that I could, like, think about touching something and it would touch it, I would be much happier than having so to if, touch it all. If you, had, if you had the option on the exact same laptop, the 15-inch, the same specs, with mm -hmm. or without the touch bar, same price, what would it be? It, like, would, I, would it have a touch bar or not? Yeah, like, or physical keys, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'd rather have it a touch, but I think I'd rather have it be a thought bar, you know, like, a, and also maybe a coffee bar. Like, <laughs> <laughs> a and a, and a, bar, yeah. a bar bar at night Yeah, and serve cocktails, but it does none of those things, maybe next week. <laughs> so, uh, I'm in Utrecht in the Netherlands, and you're at home in Toronto. Yeah, I'm still here in Toronto somehow. Um, but you, yeah, you've had an exciting week. Uh, finally getting that um, screensaver show out, right? Yeah, that, that was really fun. How did it go? Yeah. Just curious. I'm sure the audience is as well. Um, the, the screensaver show just went really well because it, it was the first time I did a big show with an institution, even though it was not as an artist, it was as a curator. But um, it's just awesome when you have all these people working with you. Mm -hmm. So I, I had the basic idea. I want to show a lot of screensavers next to each other. It's pretty basic, yep. Yeah, and then we went from there. So they did research. They, they uh, found all the creators of the screensavers. They found all the technology to show the works. Uh, they found a spatial designer to design the exhibition, and they wrote the texts, and they found a voice for the audio tour, and uh, they work on all the press. So it's almost as if you... All of a sudden, the wind is in your back before you're trying to do <laughs> right. everything yourself. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah, I know that feeling. I've had it a few times in my life. It's it's a rare feeling for sure. <laughs> yeah. How, I'm curious how the space actually was set up. Just, just a brief... Uh, well, the, 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 the space, it's a little bit hard to describe because it's not a big, uh, simple room. It's actually four corridors that form a square. Mm -hmm. but the, because it used to be an architectural institute, so the, the building is very particular. So you have to imagine just four long corridors, that uh, almost like a circle. Mm -hmm. And then we made the corridors completely dark. We, we put a lot of shades up because to block all the windows. And then there's big projection screens. Each uh, screen is two by three meters, and there's 27 of those. And simple, just straightforward projections. And we made the floor black and shiny. Ooh. So uh, it's, it's kind of, it has a nightclub feeling. Yeah. Maybe and and so as you enter first, there's a that's the biggest hallway. There's a, the most iconic, the most memorable screensavers, a lot mm -hmm. from Windows and from After Dark. So the 3D maze, the, the mm -hmm. star field, the flying toasters. That mm -hmm. I wanted to put all the ones that people had remember that are part of your memory, but that you kind of forgot about. Yeah, yeah. And did and you then, you selected all of them yourself? 
Yeah, well, we uh, the whole idea was to just to choose the most famous ones. So we mm-hmm. didn't have to search for very obscure ones because I wanted to work with uh, what what is part of the collective memory. Mm-hmm. And then the next corridor was aquarium screensavers because that was a whole genre. So we had a few of those. And then the last corridor, the third corridor, was um, all abstract works from old to new, mm. kind of showing what computers were capable of throughout the years. And then the the last corridor was a, a daylight corridor, so it wasn't too dark, and it was more of a documentary section where you, we had cardboard packaging of original screensavers and fan letters to the makers and <laughs> uh, light boxes with a lot of information, magazine clippings and old computers to show what they looked like on those older machines and things like that. That was a better time, a, a simpler time. Well, <laughs> it's it, very it, nostalgic. It, whether whether it's better Boxed or not, software. It, yeah, whether it's better <laughs> or not, at the time I think software had a more uh, different look than film. It was more removed from video or photography, and I think now software is is getting photorealistic. So. It has a primitive feeling, the older software. So that's what I like about it. Sure, but there was also like something visceral about, or there was software was more of an object than I can remember being excited, so excited to go to the like this computer store. I remember where it was, it was like the Mac, where they had Mac software because I had a Mac mm-hmm. to get boxed software, and I remember like. I relished the idea of like reading a manual, <laughs> you know, like yeah. for the software and like the the number of install discs, like King's Quest Seven or something. Like twelve, it has twelve install discs, and it was like a ritual to <laughs> yeah, install. You got nice. it home, you unwrapped it. There was like a there was like a ritual exercise. You don't in have the same feeling. Software. You don't have the same feeling when there's a, a update on your Gmail app on your phone. No, that, like, yeah, my software is updating. They've taken it away from me. They've taken the ritual. I wish they would, ju- even if they just celebrated a little bit with me, you know, like, today we, uh, you know, like, I would like to They try to do that this. on the updates with the little description saying, hey, we fixed some bugs, but also we're really funny. Yeah, you're right. And I always find it annoying. No. <laughs> because I don't but know. But it, it, it's interesting, this idea of nostalgia, that I, I was not interested in nostalgia, but more in the idea that, People had seen these a bazillion times, but never realized that who made them. Mm. So that was my interest. But then the word nostalgia came up a lot. And then when you think about movies that have been remade all the time and, and music that's been rehashed, and I didn't want to have this. It's just when you exhibit something old, when you exhibit something really old, it's not called nostalgia. But when it's the recent past, if if you would do an exhibition now of video art from the 90s, would that be nostalgic? Um, when it's, I think it's because it's pop culture. And then when mm. pop culture is 20 years old or 30 years old, then it's uh, nostalgic. Yeah, I think it's also, it's yeah, it's pop culture or kitsch. And it's things we took for granted that we didn't realize had an impact on us. And I had things a little, that were part of your daily life. Yeah. This week I had a little bit of nostalgia um, for the early... 2010s <laughs> oh. the early because we're now in 2016 de- yeah no no we're now near the end of the, our the second decade we're near of the, the end of the world and at the at the at the dawn of the first dec- second decade of the century in 2010 i don't know if it was in 2010 or shortly before or after but 
crowdfunding sort of uh, took off. Like Kickstarter yeah. was like sort of one of the first ones that I think it maybe not the very first, but the first major brand out there. So yeah, and, yeah, we we wanted to do this week's episode about crowdfunding. Yeah, and you know, for me, it's interesting in relationship with what you're talking about in terms of nostalgia because I'm doing my second Kickstarter campaign, sort of on a whim, um, after many a few years. And the first one, I remember being so stressed and excited, and like, I don't know, there's a lot of just a lot of I had a lot of feelings. You know, everything was new and uncomfortable. And this time already, I'm feeling like. I'm not even making an effort. I'm, I'm not like, selling it very well. I like put up one tweet and then I walked away. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I hope it fails. Oh, yeah. I, I've heard that from people that they, they do a Kickstarter and they hope it fails because it's so much work if you succeed. Well, this is the thing I remember from the first time I did it. So the first time I did it, actually, not only was it emotional to launch it and then to make it work, and I've, I worked every moment of every day to, for it to succeed, and then... That was that. That was just the beginning. The real work was like after that. I was working tirelessly. All the shipping, the shipping. Yeah, the shipping is actually insane. Um, And I had a semi-digital product, but yeah, I actually had to ship real physical things. And I had I have this picture of Kristen with a receipt that's like eight feet tall from the post office, and it was it was just really stressful. I can remember the day. I think you're not allowed to to sell digital goods on Kickstarter to do a digital only project. I don't know. You you can break whatever. I I think the one I have right now breaks a bunch of rules as well. Okay, you're not. Yeah. You're also not allowed to like raise. Can, funds. We, can we go back to the idea of crowdfunding even before? In general, the internet? yeah, yeah. Was oh, was, yeah. There, was there was there crowdfunding before the internet? Um, like so the let's like, so let's unpack the definition, which would be like someone gives you money before something exists. Right, like to help you get it started. It's yeah. kind of a it's kind of a form of a loan, right? Like pre pre ordering. Yeah, it's a pre order. They're saying like, I believe in you enough to like give you this money to help you get you started. Do you remember when you were in art school or before that uh, some people would want to do a video or a book and they would ask people to contribute so they could do it? I can re- well what I did in art school, and that's, I think it's a really interesting question about how do people get things done when they don't have anything, <laughs> right? Or they don't have enough of something. And certainly, yeah, like as an art school student, I wouldn't have gone to the bank. But what I would have done is I would have asked friends for like equipment or their help, right? I would have sort of, um, well, what I did do is form a collective, actually. And that's Mm. how I got, that's how I got started. uh, So it was like free. I I have a theory about collectives in art. Well, they always break down, but yeah, yeah. theory. That's my theory. (laughs) (laughs) There he is. It sounds good, but it always it always messes up. Well, the problem. No, no. My my theory is that when you when you're an individual and an artist and you're starting, it's like looking at the night sky in the desert, and there's so many little stars that you you can't identify a a particular artist, and but Mm. the artist needs attention to realize the projects. Right. So then the, the, the artist gathers a bunch of other artists and then together they form a constellation. So when you see the night sky, you can be like, oh, that's the surrealism constellation. Mm. That's the impressionism constellation. So it's easier to find that artist. Right. But then what happens is a lot of the members of the constellations start doing embarrassing things. <laughs> and also the, the individuals start getting more notoriety so they feel like they don't need the constellation and the, the things they put up with before, the embarrassments, then start to really eat at them. And they're like, oh, I have to distance myself from the constellation. But then you're stuck. And uh, yeah, they try to distance <clears> them. <throat> you nailed so it. That's my, that's my theory. <laughs> you no, know, you nailed it, for sure. 
all of my collectives have broken up very emotionally and it's always been some sort of ego um sometimes my own or someone else's but only um, gilbert and george are able to stay together I think well I think for you know for a collective to work in sort of the communist sense of the word you need to strip identity out of it right and so it, in some ways in art it's like the biggest challenge is like how could we all have identities but also strip them away and help each other it's not going to you know it's not going to work no one tells you that when you're starting um and it does work for a little while it actually helped me get noticed early on um really well mm-hmm. like you said the constellation thing did work it's almost like they should be time limited You know, like yeah. we agree to be a collective, you know, for six months, like a crowdfunding campaign or, or a month, 30 days yeah. of collective. It's also a bit like new media art where people are like, oh, nobody knows me. I guess I, if if I'm with the new media group, then I can oh, yeah. get some shows. And then all of a sudden you're labeled. You're like, no, no, wait, I'm, I'm more than just computers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that old problem. But anyway, um, yeah, that was the way I would have done it before. Now, I think the regular people, it's funny because I was I was looking up. I did like my five minutes before the podcast research <laughs> and I was looking up, I was like, because I had this hunch, I was like, do people even, you know, people even care about crowdfunding anymore? Is it, you know, it's like one of those buzzwords like 3D printing we've talked before that, you know, came and went and is it growing at all? So I looked it up and sure enough, it is growing, but guess it, it's not the growing that we think it is. It's like, it's not, um, it's not like a Kickstarter that's growing. It, the biggest, the fastest growing category in crowdfunding is P2P lending, person to person lending. Oh. So like, you know, if I, I guess through these, like, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't have a chance to look up what products I are. I heard about P2P lending as an investment. Like if you have savings, you can put it in a, mm-hmm. some sort of P2P lending and you get a guaranteed interest. Well, there you go. Right. So it's like, but it, that reminded me of a trip to russia i took in the middle in like a long time ago in 2004 a very long time ago now mm-hmm. um such that russia was still like kind of fragile like from the 90s like they were they were they were just coming out of it in the 90s which were really rough and i was at the embassy the canadian embassy um and it was a really weird time that was this is a time maybe you remember these times where embassies would pay artists to like you know, in a country. and oh, The Dutch embassy still does that. Oh, they still do? Did it? Like, yeah. in this particular case, I was taken into a back room and they handed over, like, m- money in American dollars, like American <laughs> cash. It's like, they pushed it across the table. Yeah. They're like, here's your money. Thank don't you for representing... Yeah, thank yeah. you for representing Canada in Moscow. <laughs> It's like a spy or something. But anyway, at the Canadian Embassy in Moscow, it's pretty cool. They have a bar. So I went down to the bar Uh, it's like a secret society and like the people there were like bankers and stuff um but like i you know i was the artist so i i, I don't know they were curious i started talking to one and he worked for a, a bank here um a really big one um and he was saying that like they couldn't like they they were trying to expand to russia but they couldn't make it work And I was like, well, what's wrong? And he's like, well, you know, the Russians don't trust the banks because, you know, in the ruble, it was being, um, you know, uh, there, when there was inflation, the value was changing constantly and the banks would, you know, sometimes it'd be runs on banks. And so putting your money in the bank was looked at as like a really fragile thing. And so what do I was like, well, what do people do? Well, they they trade with their neighbors and their friends. Like, so they um, they lend each other money. And mm. I was like, what? That's crazy. What is this, the Dark Ages? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was like, no, I mean, and it's probably going to be impossible for banks to ever make an impact here because 
the trust is just totally gone. I've heard and, the same of the Chinese when they moved to Chinatown in New York, and they, they mm -hmm. don't like to put their money in the bank. Yeah, but what was interesting about that is I looked at that as as like something backward, like at that time, right? But really, mm -hmm. that's that's the crowdfunding model when you think about it, right? It's like get your friends and family together to all lend you a little bit of money, you know. And it's really the same way a church hands out, like puts it, like passes a basket around or a hat or. Or mm -hmm. yeah, or a band that goes around the room, or on a subway car in New York when you know some dancers perform. But it's it's also a way of gauging uh, how many of your product you should manufacture. Mm -hmm. So if you're making a book, I, I heard it's pretty good for books, like photography books or artist books. And then if you pre-sell and you know that you might sell a little bit more than what you pre-sell, and then you can kind of gauge. How many of these books should I print? How much would it cost? And yeah, and so that like the way I got involved in my first Kickstarter is I actually got a phone call. This is another funny, funny analog experience. It was like, "Hello," and they're like, "Hey, this is Kickstarter." <laughs> or actually, it was. It was <laughs> you now immediately fun. hung up and you, <laughs> you blocked the number. And they're like, "Yeah, we're really interested in your work, and we'd love if you'd run a Kickstarter campaign." It's like, "What is this? Like, websites are calling me on the phone now." And this <laughs> hey, person, this is Google. Did you try searching? <laughs> <laughs> but actually it was really amazing because they were like speaking my language the person who called me has actually become a dear friend I'll protect her identity um, and you know she just knew everything about like new media and she was like oh, we want critical projects and And then she's like, you know what, uh, you should do it. And I was like, yeah, but I don't really need to raise funds for anything. I guess I could but she's like, no, no, that's not what this is about. She said Kickstarter and crowdfunding is not about making money or lending or creating uh, or raising cash. It's about building an audience. And I was like, what are you talking about building an audience? That sounds like a marketing spin to me, just to get me interested. But um, it really what she was doing, it is a little bit of marketing spin, but I think it's also like when you do one of these things, you're reaching all these new people, right? And you're figuring out, it's kind of like a basically marketing, right? And so it's you, a social network. Yeah, because the way you have to function when you do it is you suddenly have to reach out and find people who will buy this thing. And But there are huge Kickstarters that uh, they'll fund an entire film. Right, yeah. and so But they're using modern marketing techniques. So this is one of the huge contrasts I've noticed since my last uh, Kickstarter. So last Kickstarter, a few years ago, I maybe got at the end of my Kickstarter, I got like an email being like, hey, do you want to turn your Kickstarter into a store? Like a sales call. You know, we'll operationalize that for you and you can run this as a business because the whole idea is it's getting a bit new business, a new idea started and, and going. But this time I've received like, I'd have to say like already like it's like 10 a day, 10 messages from different marketers or people that are trying to help me succeed, uh, which I wouldn't expect. And they're really cheesy and they, they're like, hey, man, cool stuff. I'd like to help you. <laughs> Well, it's weird. I, I feel a little bit weird talking about this because one of the founders is a friend of mine also. No, I mean, but, I'm, but I'm uh, super with you supportive. as well. So it's, it's, yeah. it's funny how uh, it, in, in the and this is uh, this podcast is not just about Kickstarter. It's about crowdfunding. But yeah. Kickstarter in their DNA and even in the constitution of their company, it says they're a company for good. It doesn't mean they're a charity, but they, they're trying to it. At the base level, they're trying to make the world a better place by letting smaller parties uh, generate bigger projects. Yeah, and I think that actually, as far as companies go, they've been 
super and positive. as far as other startups yeah mm-hmm. it, it's it's a, it's a startup for the little guy yeah they're a b corp and i think that this is the the thing that's really interesting about them and so i'm running i'm running this other this kickstarter right now because um they again they asked me and they're very personal and communicative and they're like and their community is a big part of how they do things um so this isn't like to be critical of them i think one thing that i know from yeah, being friends with people there and stuff. Um, certainly don't want to promote them or uh, put them down, but like, just talk about the space critically. Is that yeah. um, is that like uh, they've always had this tension between becoming like Sky Mall, like anything on the internet is going to get corrupted by commerce, right? Like so, you know. Well, there's they, that term on social networks, uh, TTD. What's that? It's, it's time till dick. So when you when you have a let's say you have something like chat roulette which starts as a pretty open concept and then at some point somebody's like okay I'll show my penis. So <laughs> okay. it, it, social networks can just degrade very quickly if there's no editing and I think every social network is like so who are we who is our audience? Of course we want everyone but we still want it to be clean or smart or funny and Yeah. Not, well yeah. what I think's really interesting is just you know you give you, you create a platform, you're creating a space where it's a basically a marketplace, right? And so by definition, it's like you're creating a little mini country for cap, a little, little mini space for capitalism, right? You're creating, it's like a little... Well, for capital, not for capitalism. I think. It, yeah, I, I guess, guess for, yeah. I guess for capital, but capitalism relies, yeah, relies on competitiveness or well, in exchange. I, I, yeah, and I, I just think the word capitalism is used too easily. I, I think when you're... Mm. Okay, trading, let's say for capital. Yeah. Okay. When you're trading, sorry. No, when when you're when you're bartering and you're you're uh, trading a little bit of effort for ten or twenty dollars, I, I I don't think that has much to do with <laughs> right, right. Like well, buying up half a continent to take its resources. That's well. What what I guess yeah. what I meant is like you're sort of opening the space to those parties that might you know exploit it, um, and I think that that's the one like so they're a very altruistic company and like i said you know the founder and and their origin is like he was a music writer a lot of the people uh like their original kickstarter was just they wanted to raise money for their band right or whatever Mm -hmm. um to do shows and um and that's like a pure thing like they've always said they wanted to be more for artists than for you know iphone case companies or like the wallet companies uh, yeah so there's a lot of uh, uh semi-professional or almost even Sony will put up stuff on Kickstarter which is crazy when you think about it yeah because they think of it as an advertising platform right which is also the first way it was sort of projected out to me and so I've always tried to figure out you know what I'm trying to figure out what it's evolving into or what it how it exists now in the public consciousness is it like is the idea of raising because it's a very pure concept in general right like get your friends and community to help you do something new right Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that's the way. Like that was a really exciting concept to me. But I think I think that still exists. You it's think the so? same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's just how you use it. And, and obviously, if Sony uses it, they, it's not that they need the money. Mm-hmm. They just want to uh, get attention. But yeah. I, I'm I'm working on a book now, and um, with a Dutch publisher, and we were wondering should we do crowdfunding or? And in the end, I decided. Uh, to work together with my galleries, they all chip in a little bit, and mm-hmm. then we had a little bit of government funding. That was the, the easier route for me, because I knew if I would go start that book on Kickstarter, it would get attention, but it would also be an enormous amount of work, uh, very distracting. 
and that mm-hmm. would that I'm just very careful not to spend time on those kind of things because those kind of distractions really um, I'm just very careful not to have too many distractions in my mm-hmm. life because so that's, why would, that's why my would you choose not to just produce it and put it out through your own website though because you've you've done that before uh, because the I, I went I went the traditional route of the publisher because the whole idea of a book is to also reach out to another audience. Mm. So to yeah. reach out to people for uh, curators or older art collectors or the, those kind of people who, mm-hmm. because the people on the internet can see my work, they can go online and see it. So why would they need a book? No, but that's an interesting point, right? Because the publisher acts as a, they have broader distribution, but they also have a certain amount of credibility that they bring with them, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and also the also they're really good at editing, so they know a lot of good writers. It's just a, a more formal approach because I did a book before that was all online, and mm-hmm. people bought it online mostly. And now I wanted to try the other route. Mm-hmm. And it's still expensive to make a book, as I understand it. Yeah, yeah, it is. But uh, I I think it's also a good way to make money. It's uh, I I think you can definitely if. If you have an audience online, you can definitely make money with a book. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not a lot, but you can definitely do more than break even. Yeah. But anyway, I guess um, getting... Well, I don't know what... I didn't come in today trying to make a point, but just like with this feeling that I didn't know... You know, I wasn't as stressed or excited or... And maybe it's because the project so I So this... Up, do you need a pep talk? Is that what it is? <laughs> well, here's what I was going to do. Uh, and Jeremy... I this is the one moment <laughs> all else stopped existing. It's you and Kickstarter. I actually need the money. You need this to time. read the people. <laughs> yeah, I need to read the people. So what without, I was gonna... without the success, you don't exist. You you have to survive. And then you have the rocky music and. Uh, yeah. Do you want to hear the sleazy thing that I was thinking of doing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to hear that. <laughs> well, I was just I was thinking. I would I would use I would do some advertising artwork on the back side of this project, um, some micro targeting. So because this is, this is a trending topic, but well, what, we don't can have to you go tell us it. what the project is? Yeah, yeah. So the project's kind of um, I don't yeah. Like uh, one thing I'm always worried about on this podcast is it becomes advertisement for ourselves. So I just want to say like, don't go fund this Kickstarter. <laughs> That's not why I'm talking and why, about this. Why do, it, it's it's so funny to me this idea of. Uh, feeling guilty to promote yourself <laughs> uh, I, I and, feel like and then in in the rap hip-hop world it's always been cool to just say yeah i have an energy drink and i have some licensed sneakers and mm. i want to be rich and it's okay to desire vast multitudes of wealth but then in art you're supposed to be above that somehow and yeah. the less you talk about money the more money you get well the capital i have is like sort of the is uh, social capital right and i i don't want to just like feed it all back into myself i'd like to be able to lend my social capital to others um anyway the thing that i'm doing on maybe on that front is actually i'm trying to raise money for this artist accelerator that i have where i'm funding other artists Mm -hmm. and so um to come up with products critical products and that's like uh important that act as artworks in the world and actually, I think that's where something like Kickstarter can be really interesting, where you can like create an impractical, speculative product 
that wouldn't be possible. But, like you couldn't but, walk to the bank and get a loan for it. But you would have to ship something at the end of it and like have different tiers of uh, contribution. Well, I currently have several artists working, and uh, and some of them are doing bizarre things like marshmallow machine guns. Is one of the <laughs> like <laughs> machine guns made out of marshmallows. Uh, another one has like um, it's a Tor browser on an SD card um, that's that's wrapped in a condom wrapper, so you can give friend a friend safe browsing. Um, and another one is like uh, like they're in, they've invented like a new kind of Creative Commons, but for labor. Um, so like if you're going to volunteer hours or something like or form a collective like we were just talking about, it's like this symbol you can wear and say like, hey, I'm this type of person. I'm not, you know, I'm going to behave this way. These are my values and I'm willing to work with you for free. Anyway, they all, there are all these ideas that are pretty socially progressive and they exist as products in the world that I want to fund, right? And mm -hmm. I'm helping them develop the products and, and, and test so, them. But, so. but, but when you contribute to this Kickstarter... Uh, yeah, so when you contribute to this Kickstarter, where, where I'm selling, the thing I'm selling is a bit of, it's supposed to be critical of Kickstarter and like a bit of, fun. it's funny, right? Like, so it's an iPhone case, you know, because we've all seen an iPhone case available on Kickstarter. I, I could have done a wallet, like a space-saving wallet, but I did an iPhone <laughs> case. Uh, and the iPhone case is, uh, it's actually two cases. One is a hammer and one is a sickle. Um, sort of like this, the symbols of the proletarian, of proletarian unity, or I guess communism, but really I like to think about it in the original Marxist uh, sort of sense of the word, this idea that together we can come together and do things that um, don't happen top down, like in a capitalist kind of way that happen from the bottom up in sort of like we were talking about a collectivist way. Um, and so they're, of course, I don't, the, the tagline's beautifully impractical for these things. They're totally useless cases. They're completely symbolic. Though I would love to see... Because the case makes your phone three times bigger. Yeah, the case <laughs> makes your phone absurdly large. And you have to have two phones for it to work. So in all of my work, I like there to be a contradiction, like so that you're not sure what position I'm taking with it. And that's what I consider anyway. All have good you been artwork. carrying the, the phone case around? It's funny, I have two metal ones uh, that I originally made here next to me. <laughs> I haven't tried carrying them around, but I feel like I should do a little video, like a day in the life of, uh, to promote the, <laughs> the cases. I think people would um, get scared that you think you're carrying a weapon. Well, one if, of them if, is a scythe, of course. Yeah, one is yeah, a sickle. If that's so. like sticking out of your back pocket. I did blunt the edge, but you could still probably harm a person. And the hammer in its metal form could kill a person. I have the, the steel version of it, uh, which I'm not selling, because I think it so could be... So maybe you sell it that way, <laughs> sell like hotcakes. Yeah. Sell like as murder weapons. Yeah. Yeah, because you have to get them onto a plane. <laughs> I, need my, <laughs> I need to protect my case. Uh, yeah, I uh, that's potentially why no one's funding it so far. I've had two people. But and, and, and uh, so since this is a more altruistic uh, Kickstarter than your last one, you're mm -hmm. less energized. Do you think that's what it is? I'm just more chill because like if it fa well, here's the thing. It's almost it's really, really hard to make a profit with crowdfunding because people still com they compare it to what they could buy. They do price what's called price anchoring. So they look at the price of something and they think, well, if I bought this in a store, it would cost this much. Why is this twice as much or whatever? Well, it's like, well, I'm only produce, producing a hundred of these and I'm and I'm producing them to like fund this other thing. Um, so that's why, because it's an original artwork, right? But that doesn't make sense to the average consumer. So mm -hmm. that's why I was sort of talking about how it still kind of favors the big guys. Um, 
in that like what I've noticed it's kind is of the same same tragedy of the internet where we thought oh this is going to give everyone an opportunity yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah and you're like oh yeah like why is your handmade thing so expensive I mean I can't afford that I'm selling these things so that I'm barely making any money and that's why I, I was a little fed up with editions because I I I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast before. When I started making lenticular works, I was like, okay, I could sell something oh, yeah. like a, a 12-inch or 20-inch print, and I could sell them online. And we made this, uh, it, we made a small edition of vinyl records with a lenticular cover, and we were selling them at a loss, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was a full-color lenticular cover edition of 100, and the record was, like, I think, $30. Mm-hmm. And people were complaining that it was too expensive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and was, I was selling them at a loss. And then I was like, well, this is, of course, you want to make something for everyone. So I, for me, I kind of decided either my art is either free or expensive. The, the in between just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And the, re- the other reality is just not that many people want a re- you know, something ridiculous and they don't have the money to, like, I don't have a part in my budget that says like ridiculous spending, right? No, but uh, I, like, there are a lot of people who would love to buy a work of art for 300 or well, like I do. that price range. Yeah, yeah. I do. Um, but then why would they buy it from me and not another artist or so many artists? Because you're the best. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not, I can't say that, obviously, except I do say that in character. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I think it, it's a lot to ask. And, and the original, so one of the things that people don't talk about in terms of crowdfunding is in the world of software design and like startup culture, there's this this concept of uh, of lean and like part of uh, and that's what I was alluding to when I said my thing about lean artist is there's this idea that um, that you have to sh- like make the, the the amount of time before you create you have an idea and you put it out in the market as small as possible so you don't waste time and money developing products no one wants right and as artists we're familiar mm-hmm. with this as like you know, you share a sketch or like a study, a small version of something before you do a big one, right? And um, on Kickstarter, it kind of exists to fill this space called what, what, for what's called like a smoke test. So in uh, startup culture, you're working towards an MVP, like a minimum viable product. But the minimum thing you can test in the market, as, and you want to get to there as soon as possible, as fast as possible, so you can learn if you're right or wrong. Because apparently 90% of businesses are wrong about the product and the prop, the yeah. customer, the problem, and the solution. They fall in love yeah. with the solution and they, you know, they, they miss the problem. I heard a story about, uh, I think it was Honda when they started exploring the US market. Mm-hmm. And they had a big motorcycle that was kind of like a Harley Davidson. Mm. And they're trying to sell them, and nobody wanted a. They're like, I'll just get a Harley. Why would I get a Japanese version? Mm. And then they had these these tiny dirt bikes to, you know, those uh, very light ones that you can jump around in the dirt. Yeah. Um, and I think they they just brought a few from Japan, but they never thought Americans would like those. And then people went crazy over those. They didn't. They never imagined Americans would want those. And then it became a whole genre. So it's. It was really by accident. They, they well, that's really interesting because they they created that in isolation, almost like a you know like a rare animal in Australia or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And then it was not just the novelty, but all kinds of other things that, that you couldn't have tested probably in the American market. Actually, in some but ways, so that the, contradicts it, it, it. That that definitely says you have to try things. Yeah, yeah. The other story, by the way, I know from the Japanese is like um, <laughs> is that they 
where Lean was concerned, they didn't know very much about American audiences. One of the first uh, people to figure out the American audience from Japanese car market, because you know the Japanese, the Japanese uh, invented Lean. This idea that I'm talking about about testing things out, getting to your, know your customer as soon as possible. And one area they wanted to break into, maybe this is boring, I don't know, but was minivans. And mm-hmm. so the head of Toyota, is it Toyota that makes the Sienna minivan? I you know, know very all. little about cars. No, uh, Raphael, when I think minivans, <laughs> <laughs> I think family man, I think Raphael Rosendahl. That's me. <laughs> anyway, what he did is he came, uh, he, he like he, he, he's like, he's, he became head of Toyota and he's like, okay, first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a flight to America, I'm gonna like buy a minivan and then I'm gonna drive across the country meeting with families that are also you know driving minivans. At the time, a Chrysler minivan was like the number one minivan. And by driving his this own, his own minivan, like the, the one Toyota built, he realized what was wrong with it. He's like, no family could use this. You know, there's no cup holders and I'm driving for miles. But in Japan, these things were useless, right? And so yeah. by living the American life, he realized why Americans weren't willing to buy Japanese cars. Also, the quality needed to be, you know, better in a whole bunch of areas because of the distances. Anyway, he just really, all this stuff came to him. You have to experience it. You had to experience it firsthand, right? And you couldn't yeah. just, you couldn't just read a report in Japan, which was like, you know, Diary of the American Consumer or something like that. You actually had to go out there and experience I, it yourself. I always wonder if, if 60 or 80 years ago, artists would have talked in the same way about business strategies and, <laughs> and how to apply that into their work. Yeah, I, maybe it's my fault. I'm a I'm a corrupting influence on this podcast. No, I just talk I'm, about I'm business this, strategy. I think I think most most artists I know are very interested in these mechanisms because they're so dominant in today's life. Mm-hmm. So, it, for example, Constant Dollar did the, his uh, media player. Yeah, he, and this is a brilliant to, project. We should have talked he, about sooner. He, he stayed. Uh, he did a residency in China, and he was near where all the hardware is made. So it's an area where you can come up with a hardware idea and there's so many people there that can help you it's it's um it's it's just very native to the environment have you ever, has he ever told you the story i want to hear if he told you the same story he told me about how he met how he made that work because he was in shenzhen for a residency and yeah. it wasn't going very well and then he told me that like he couldn't meet the right people to get the thing made that he wanted to make and then one night there was like a big party like a festival in shenzhen <laughs> <laughs> and he was talking to some people. I think he, I'm, I've, I've built this up in my head, so I want to check back with Constant about it. But he was, you know, he was drinking. It was, it was like, like you know, it was, an, it was a festive night, and he's talking to some people, and they're like, "What? You want to make a media player? Then you have to speak to the king." <laughs> and they sort of like rushed him through the streets, and and and, and, and bowed down. And yes, and before him was like sort of a pyramid structure upon which was a throne, and a man was sitting. <laughs> and they ran up the pier. He, you know, he walks up the pyramid. He asked uh, if he could have time with the man. The man welcomed him forward, and he said, "A media player? I could have that for you next week. Come with me." <laughs> and sure enough, and then the story goes the way I think he told it to me because it's like clouded now with my mythology. Was that the following week he had a prototype for yeah. this media player? But you should talk about what the media player solves because I think this is interesting. Well, the, he called it Dull Tech. His last name is Dullart, Dull. And so it's a very boring media player that you just stick a thumb drive in and it'll play whatever file is on the thumb drive. And it'll play almost any file and it'll 
automatically sync with other of the same media players nearby. So, but this is a problem that, like, as media artists, we have like it's a very painful yeah. thing. If you've ever tried to sync two DVD players, this is like. Yeah. So he just made it very simple. Yeah. But it's so funny that because that problem has gone unsolved for like yeah. <laughs> two decades. But the but the funny thing to me of the whole project was that he. It was kind of an ironic gesture using Kickstarter, and he was hoping it would fill. So yes. he made a very, very terribly boring, way too long intro video, where Kickstarter has all these rules. You have to have some like ukulele background music and friendly yeah. faces. And In he fact, did all I, the opposite. And I know they were coaching him because they thought of yeah. him as a high-profile artist. And but he, he, he tried to do everything the wrong way so it wouldn't succeed because he really didn't want to yeah. get into production having to ship all of them. And then... Much to his uh, dismay, it did succeed. And then <laughs> I remember seeing him, and he was like, "Oh God, I gotta go to the post office and send a million of these." <laughs> <laughs> uh. No, but he had to hire an assistant, actually, as I recall, as well. Like, yeah, he didn't. Yeah. He couldn't do it alone. He couldn't actually fulfill no, no, all no. the orders. But, but that's. I think we we talked about that in the episode about being an independent artist. That the price you pay when you venture out into these things is that you you lose focus on sort of pure studio time of an artist looking at a canvas and deciding a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, and, mm-hmm. and, and like that kind of dreamy space. And then your practice becomes more of a small business, but maybe that's a more fitting practice of, of the world of today. Yeah, we did talk about that. And it reminds me that of this thing. I don't know if I've shared this saying with you before, but like someone shared it with me a while back, which is that the worst thing that can happen to you is you become successful. Or the worst thing that can happen is that you experience success. You know, when you're starting yeah, a project, you're always I think, like, I think what these if kind it of statements fails? are so funny when, when people want to make a statement and say, the worst thing that you... I, I think, like, it's a bit, terminal it's a bit eczema would be worse. <laughs> right, right, right. It's true. <laughs> yeah, I think it, there's worse things. It sounds, good at the, it sounds good in a TED Talk, but it does... <laughs> yeah, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't sound good when you say, like, there are disadvantages to success. Yeah. It's my, my other favorite one, you know, of course, is we've talked about this, I think, before is like no one uh, making more than seventy five thousand dollars a year. No one gets happier. They just get less happy. <laughs> but oh, I think man, like, that money makes me so happy, especially <laughs> everything above seventy five. And I think, yeah, that's one of those. They came up with that number just to hold everyone down. <laughs> like, Well, it, yeah, I remember in Dune that the, the, the elite creates this uh, myth that rich people are miserable because otherwise the poor would revolt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the poor, poor, the old, the poor rich people, they're suffering on our behalf. Oh, they have yeah. such hard lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but it's, it's, uh, I think it's an ongoing dilemma, especially for media artists to balance uh, entrepreneurialism and, and artist time. Yeah. And I guess that's where the, you know, where we can get to a good point on this Kickstarter stuff, which is that. I, I still think it's great for building audiences. So like the first one I did, I still... But how, how do you think it is a plus compared to other social media? Well, I'll say this because you know, maybe you don't, maybe you, you probably, I hope you know this, but I, I don't know it. Um, but I've been told that, you know, early on in your art career, it's really important to get your work into as many collectors' hands as possible. And the reason is you want to build those relationships up over time and they lead to other relationships and you just need you but you need a certain quantity of people that are interested in your work 
and collecting it makes them like immediately loyal because they so have that's, a best- that's a f- that's a funny primitive thing where we, we critique capitalism but actually when people exchange a few dollars they're more connected to you yeah yeah there's a weird relationship bond that forms like I invested in you with the you know yeah. with money it's, it's also involved. funny to me when when people email me and uh, they're like oh I wish I could buy a print or something I, I, I want to own something and yeah well I, I, want I have a about 100, 120 <laughs> websites that you can play anytime on any device yeah, uh, you you can have all your devices turned on with all those web, but no, I want to own something. Yeah, and I have I yeah. have the same weird feeling sometimes too, and but also it feels good to like like fund someone else, um, yeah. even if it's like I I fund a few like websites and stuff online. I've always funded Rhizome, but even and I never fund really more than a hundred dollars, right? But for some reason, I feel like that gives me entitlement. The same way when you discover a band early on, it's like. I was there for them. I'm a part of their success. Yeah. You know? I thought about how I could use Kickstarter, and the only thing I could think of was to ask for money to migrate my some of my websites from Flash to JavaScript, but that's mm-hmm. such a boring campaign. Like, hey, I need to do some maintenance. <laughs> but maybe just like and Constant, I, it would be hilarious. It would be this... <laughs> You go into the technical details of like the, the conversion. Here's the. Yeah. Uh, we need to optimize the server, and uh, <laughs> we need we need this sorting algorithm on the server to compress the JavaScript files. And I'd fund that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'd want like I, the, I really love the you know the potato salad on Kickstarter that campaign. Yeah. Well, that was when they changed the rules, right? Because they used to have these really strict well, rules, they, and that was one. Yeah. Of the so things. so what happened was somebody. Uh, Started a Kickstarter. Said, "I want to make potato salad. I need about twelve dollars. Would you fund it?" <laughs> and it listed all the ingredients, and he made a little video. So I need potatoes and mayonnaise, and and oh. then it went viral. So everybody wanted to contribute a dollar, and he made eighty, ninety thousand dollars in a few weeks. Yeah, and, then, and, I, and it was and viral it, because they changed they changed the rules, and it was the first project to yeah. To and then I that. remember the, the the Kickstarter people were kind of. Um, very confused as to what to decide what to do because on the one end if they keep the platform open then everyone can enter everybody's happy on the other end people will spend so much time on a very serious project and they don't get funding and then some goofy project gets a lot more funding and they get frustrated they're like oh, I'll switch to another crowdfunding platform that's yeah. more for serious people yeah and I think um Previously, like Indiegogo, and there's like hundreds of others where they kind of stripped away the rules. And Kickstarter had these principles, like you know, we're the pure, you know, like we were talking about earlier. Like they have, they are really, they have a lot of convictions around being good and like for artists and stuff. And and other ones were just like, we'll take your money, whatever you want to do. <laughs> how do you how do you want to how do you want to give us your money? We'll take it. I want to kill my grandmother. I need to buy a gun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, that's fine. That's cool. Uh, yeah, go with that. Um, yeah, so I mean, it is interesting that like um, there is a certain amount of cultural um, there, like DNA or or, or like uh, artifice around these platforms, right? Where it's like the exchange of goods or exchange of money, but like on these terms for this reason, and it's almost like the art world is very similar when a collector yeah. is buying too. Like there is this, well, I um, think the art ceremony. world is so is so different from the rest of the world that the the volume is so low so that the price is incredibly high mm-hmm. it, yeah so it, when everybody there's only 35 Vermeers in the world mm. 
So you have a lot of stockholders in, in different nations that have museums that maybe have one or two Vermeers. So everybody's invested in Vermeer. Yeah. And there's a whole market around it of uh, printed objects, of uh, books and uh, coffee cups and whatever. But it, that's such a different model than like all the fans of Elvis who all have a stake in Elvis. <clears throat> but you must know also like, um, or like, uh, you know, uh, galleries are always... Um, Rate, like so, nonprofits are always raising funds by having these auctions with artists, right? Where, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I think slightly, maybe it's a bit of a deviation for what you're talking about. But basically, come Christmas time or holidays, you can guarantee, you know, if you're an artist of a certain level, you're going to get an email being like, "Could you please donate a work to our annual fundraising auction?" It's like yeah. the, it's the Kickstarter of the gallery world, and you're like. So you are expected to give your work usually for free, or you take fifty percent or twenty five percent back of the sale. But you're also expected to kind of lower the price of the work. They'll say like, "We expect this price point will sell." Yeah. Right. But then it's also visibility. That's always the thing when they when they want a discount of a creative person. Like, yeah, but it's great exposure. Yeah, they'll say it's great exposure. They'll say all the exact things we were talking about. Things that we were talking about Kickstarter, which is funny. I didn't think of it at this point. We're getting to a good point actually. It's and it's funny because. Your my gallery will always get really nervous. They'll be like, "Yeah, we need the exposure," but there's in Toronto. We're such a small art scene that collectors will go to the auctions and be like, "Here's how I'm going to get my deal on the Jeremy Bailey. I can't afford in the regular store. I'm going to get my early bird holiday price. So I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay like one tenth. It's like Black Friday. Yeah, yeah, it's like Black Friday for <laughs> like. There's always in this one I participate in here. There's like a, always a Bertinsky who's like a famous Canadian photographer. And it's like a Pertinsky for $250 instead of for $250,000. And so he's it's always completely sold out within like two seconds. People are lined up to get there. And they just want to... It's not a good Bertinsky. They just want, like you said earlier, I just want a Bertinsky. I want a Raphael Rosenthal. Um, but I want it for yeah, less. But, but yeah, so it's... it's you, you enjoy... It's a very funny thing, this ownership, that you feel connected because you own something, even if it's a... It's a bit like owning a stock because you're hoping that the stock will go up further. <laughs> but the tension is, do you want to own it at a price at which the artist is potentially losing money? <laughs> the, 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 the auction benefit thing is a bit crazy. Where, um, let's say an artist will sell 50 works a year and donates mm-hmm. one work. So that's, uh, what's that, 4%? Mm-hmm. Let me calculate. Yeah, that's 4% of your income. So if a doctor makes... 200,000 a year that would be the equivalent of them donating 8,000 well yeah I mean I also like yeah that's a pretty hefty donation well then again like at somebody like I participated once in a pretty high-end auction here in Canada like the most it's like the most high-end one in Canada which means it's like the bottom of the the American ladder (laughs) this is me being disparaging towards Canada but like at this auction all the wealthiest Canadians are there Sotheby's like is you know the auctioneer so it's not like just your small gallery thing it funds a gallery uh, like a, a an art magazine here but canadian art um but you know you have like this guy like galen weston is there and he owns our largest like grocery store chain and and so i would participate in this auction and i was selling like um these portraits that i was doing at the time and I was gonna. It would be like custom portrait uh, that I would work with you for. And da, da, da. anyway, the auction has the wealthiest people with the most money, and 
Not all the work sold. Actually, most of the work sold. My specifically, I think I was the only one who didn't sell this option. <laughs> <laughs> and I and it was really appalling because right opposite me was like a terrible uh, photographic print of like a golf ball on a tee. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> And it sold like right away, you know, like Galen Weston got it. But, you know, well, it what was I, not your scene, I guess. Well, what I found uh, somewhat offensive was like the, during the auction was how because I knew the names on the list was how little these wealthy people were paying for was really high end work. Yeah. And yeah. I couldn't but I was like, if this is how it is here, because I'd always assumed it was in the small gallery, like where, you know, like we were talking about earlier, where you had to set the price low and it was like a festive thing so you get christmas presents but this was like at the highest level you know the the billionaires were like no nah, you know i don't think that uh that that warhol's worth that much or whatever it wasn't warhol but you know what i'm saying like and mm-hmm. so you know I, I was just so and the, and then the things that were selling were just the things that they liked like golf <laughs> or so like they football. they they're basically discount shopping and and giving to charity at the same time Yeah, it was just like, I don't know, it was one of those things where, uh, you know, you assume that they would just be in a generous spirit. So I guess that's the good point I'm trying to get to, which is like, that the that the idea behind crowdfunding is supposed to be about gener- generosity of community and spirit and that collectivism, like that, I, when I formed an mm-hmm. art collective when I was in school, it's about coming together and helping each other out, which I still believe in. Right after this, I'm going to go help a young student because I still believe in like going and helping in my community. That's what the art world, that was what was really addictive to me about the art world is like the sense of community. But I, I don't, th- uh, yeah, that's funny. I don't see the art world that way at all. I, th- I see it as a very But you did BYOB. Selfish. What about Yeah, BYOB? yeah, but, but I think the essence of the art, maybe it is. For me, it's about the... Well, there are two art worlds then, isn't there? Yeah, but for me, at, at the... There's that level of helping, but there's also a level of selfishness that you need to say, okay, I could help my grandmother right now, but I'm going to spend time in my studio thinking about nothing because I might have a genius idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it it it, it well, is an antisocial thing. It, you're, it, yeah, you're t- you're alluding to something that's another funny topic, which is like going to another artist opening or not. <laughs> Just like... <laughs> Because this is the problem. Every Thursday night, you're like, I could go out to the, my friend's opening, or I could yeah. stay in the studio and get ready for my opening. <laughs> yeah, but it's a, I think in in essence, uh, you're making something of no use, mm-hmm. and that is most that is your particular most individual interest. That's an antisocial thing. Mm. But it but it relies so much on. S- on social networks it's such yeah, a yeah but those things thing. are secondary i think the, mm. the, the the primary interest is the same way a scientist who does fundamental research cannot think okay this might help the world no they just have to really think about the craziest math equation just because they're curious not mm. because they think it might help anyone right so the, you're saying like There's a certain amount of research and development, that, and and a, and that's what you're talking. I guess when an artist talks about their practice, you know, which is yeah. a very pretentious word. Well, it's a <laughs> misleading like, word because it's it, it's uh, it's research and it's unpractical. So to call it practice <clears throat> is very strange. Well, I've always liked the word. Uh, it's my practice because I, I never felt like I'm doing a good job. <laughs> so it's like yeah, I'm just yeah, practicing. I'm just practicing. <laughs> Yeah, I just don't like the word uh, practice opposed to theory because then right. they're like, oh, well, that's uh, practical. Mm, mm. 
Yeah. Well, anyway, so but you're but to get to something like the chances that you uh, you make your big discovery like a scientist are pretty are pretty rare. But then I would just argue um, to counter argue a leap that, of faith. Yeah. But that you might if you if you discover it and no one understands it or sees it, uh, then did yeah. you really make the discovery? Yeah, that's the other thing. If you have a brilliant equation but nobody uses it, yeah. Like I'm right now in the news. There's like all this talk about uh, microtargeting, Facebook, fake news, all, and Trump using these algorithms on Facebook. Blah blah blah. Anyway, we're not going to get into the politics of it. But what's interesting is I made work a few years ago that exposed that truth, and it people weren't didn't really understand what I was doing. They're like, I don't get what you're talking about, right? Because I hadn't Mm -hmm. really hit that cultural moment, right? It's pretty hard to understand, also. Well, I think also like they always talk about this in product design or in entrepreneurial culture, which is like you know this mythology of being at the right place at the right time with the right discovery, and that like you know those two lines need to intersect, and then you get like Google, right? Like you have to be you can't. It's not enough to be the first. You have to be like there at the right time. Um, yeah, like like Friendster was a little early, and then and then MySpace, and then Facebook really did it. Yeah, exactly. They it's call not that, that Facebook invented it. It's just they had the right version at the right time. They held it fa- the fast follower kind of effect, right? Like that. It's better to be a fast follower than to be first. Um, but yeah, but I think you're not really in control of at what moment you're coming up with which idea. Yeah, yeah. I guess a company is more strategic, but probably not. There's probably not much difference between an artist that's just like trying to figure it out, and and then of course the old mantra, which I hate, is like. You're only famous after you die, and also like that perverts the whole concept that fame is what you're looking for. Um, very few artists are actually seeking just fame, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I don't know. We're, I I think the major, um, like, you're in the Netherlands, like during the golden era or whatever. Was it called the golden age or when were the, all yeah. the the painters that from, the 17th century? Yeah, yeah, that which was also the era when they were looting the planet right right when they were like they're on top of their game <laughs> yeah. yeah no they had official pirate letters from the government saying okay just <laughs> really? just rob them yeah oh god well that that makes a lot of sense now i understand you better i'm just kidding <laughs> uh yeah. no i think yeah well anyway at that time where those those people were pretty well recognized right like within those artists right well, I think that the, the big moments in art history are tied to big moments in economy and power. Mm-hmm. But the artists were celebrated. Like, you know, if you're going to paint the yeah, king... Yeah, because there was, there, yeah. there was money to celebrate them. Yeah, right. Yeah, and they were yeah. being paid while they were alive. You know, yeah. I, I don't think it's until Van Gogh that suddenly there's this mythology of the artist with a bandaged ear dying in poverty. Yeah, it's, it's weird. There's, there's artists who are a little bit known in their time and then are more well-known or... Someone like Rembrandt was pretty well known in his time, and then he went out of fashion after he died. But then he got picked up again two hundred years later. But they were and so, they, and they, but they were doing still like crowdfunding type stuff, or they were trying to get. There was were a lot of commissioned work. Yeah, but they were also doing the salons in Paris, right? So and there was placement within that. So it was like you know if yeah. you were you know getting spot a spot in the salon low on the wall, you know, so that more people and there were lineups out the door to see that stuff. 
I don't know that that's not buying a work with a group of people or was it was building social capital and then if you were the most popular artist in that show then you were probably going to get a a royal commission or a prestigious commission and then that and so on and so forth Um, you know and of course that led to the Salon des Refusés which was like you know the Impressionist Salon but then that was more popular than the original Salon and da 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 so popularity has always been a part of how uh, artists survival strategy yeah survival strategy I don't think it's really possible to separate the two. Um, it, it, like strategically speaking, like I knew, I know I can't make physical things. That's why I focus on performance. And you know, it's funny. Like uh, musicians used to sell discs, obviously, and now they perform live, and they make more money on performance performing live. But now they make mm-hmm. more money on T-shirts. It's like, and now you know, and essentially we're back uh, to square one. Well, they also make a lot of money on tickets. Yeah, they they make a lot of money on tickets and swag. That's where most musicians make yeah. their, their money, right? But they're yeah. that's a lot closer to what I would consider a crowdfunding model, right? Which is like get a lot but, of people but, here to buy a mug to support me to stand on stage, you know. But what's also interesting to me is that in art, it's uh, kind of frowned upon to sell uh, minor products next to the the actual art. So. If if you would sell a lot of T-shirts and calendars and uh, mugs and uh, mouse pads, mm-hmm. I mean that's okay. But in general, that's seen as the lesser work and that's seen as the the minor thing. When it's actually you're reaching out to people, so people with a smaller wallet can also own something related to you. Yeah, but it's like it's. But it's, it's back to that thing where, like, yeah. what I mean is, it's back to that idea that in in popular culture and especially in hip hop, it's cool to aspire to a lot of money and to mm. make songs about that and just be like, yes, I I would really, really, really like to be rich. I think the idea of selling and out. Art, but the, I mean that's kind of contradictory to yeah. Kickstarter because yeah. in Kickstarter you're basically saying, hey guys, I'm vulnerable. I can't do this on my own. I need right. some help. Right. And and when you think about the classic sort of Jackson Pollock type of artist, he wouldn't make a video and be like, hey guys, I'm making these drip paintings, but I run out of paint. Mm-hmm. So you guys need to help me, and this is how I drip. <laughs> right. Wouldn't make sense it, with his work. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's it's very contradictory to the nature of the, the art world, which is these very few benefactors that uh, want to hold... A, they want to have a stake, but they don't want there to be too many shareholders. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, again, I, maybe maybe yeah. what I'm saying is that as soon as as the volume of your objects increases, mm-hmm. um, it's less museum-like. Yeah, but it's also and less precious, it's, right? It's less precious. So yeah, so it's it you're kind of then moving away from uh, the the. Um, the norms or the etiquette of the art world. Yeah, I think, and everyone, I mean, or my favorite examples like William Wegman, who, you yeah. know, makes posters and calendars and mouse pads and mugs of dogs. Well, the, to tell people what he does, he, he started making videos of his dog as a conceptual artist. In the 1970s, yeah. In the 1970s, they're really great. The Highly videos. celebrated, then, yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, but they also had an immense popular appeal, and then he decided to also make calendars and books and things that just appeal to everybody. But I think he kind of just used the art world. He was like, wait a second, I'm onto something that maybe has broader appeal than the art world. And now mm-hmm. I'm, here's my thing is like the art world has shunned William Wegman. They've said like, William Wegman, he sold out. Man, like I was so talented. What is he doing now making calendars? But I wonder if like the person buying that calendar is like, oh, man, this William Wegman, he was making such great conceptual videos in the 1970s. 
I just get, now I get to have a calendar of his. I don't. I think you know they're not thinking about it from that perspective. It's separate. Yeah. Yeah. It's separate. Yeah. But so it it would be funny to have an alternate universe where William Wegman decided not to make the calendars and then see <laughs> what the world would have thought of him. I don't know. Yeah, it's another similar example. That's like, well, there are a lot of artists, but Vito Conchi from the same era who stopped making his videos too and just moved on to architecture. Completely different work. I think it's a topic probably for another topic, a podcast where artists have quote unquote pivoted. You know, where they've changed, yeah. they've changed direction completely mid career, even at the at the height of their success, and they've said. Actually, this is, and we all think about this probably as artists. Well, Warhol too. at some point moved to film and he said, no more paintings. And then he didn't paint for a while. But the question is whether that was like based on a market reaction, an audience reaction, or just their own instinct. Like to your point earlier about just being this lone philosopher, lone scientist in your lab. Is it suddenly like, oh, I'm bored of this. I'm going to move on. I'm, I'm going to go completely in a new direction. You know, I've yeah. had that feeling. Like it's a fantasy sometimes. But it's interesting to me that uh, you're less excited about this Kickstarter, even though you're helping people. So maybe yeah. deep down you're more selfish than you think. We should come down. Yeah, we should, let's close on that. <laughs> Which is like, I'm less, yeah, I have less conviction because it's for, some, it's for someone else. <laughs> so terrible. No, you know what? I'm going to do, I'm going to campaign. I actually said, I just didn't have time. I had to squeeze it, put it out because they, they said that they would help me promote it if I did it this week. Um, you used to get a big bump from promotion. I didn't notice a, a huge bump um, like in the past, but I'm going to do some conceptual advertising. Let me put it that way to help uh, <laughs> boy the spirits. I'll use some of my back end trickery. Uh, yeah, and, and Coca Cola will will co opt that later. <laughs> That's the stuff that uh, that I'll talk about in another podcast. How to uh, hack your way to success? <laughs> exactly. Life hacks. Yeah. But we're probably running out of time, and we should get into um, help people, un- you know, get back into their relaxed mode after we fired them up about art and market. People are fuming at the wheel of their cars, like the world's just fucked up. <laughs> you can't win either way. Good point is always just about showing us how impossible it is to be successful. <laughs> that we should, well, let, yeah, let's yeah, get, yeah. Is it? I don't know. Well, it, or maybe it's, it's just too easy. <laughs> I think it's complicated. I think everything's complicated. That's what makes it interesting. And um, I like talking about it. What if success is listening to a podcast that you're able to listen to? Then our listeners have succeeded. Well, I love hearing from our listeners because one of the things that they're sharing with us is like hearing us get to a resolution, not knowing. Like, I didn't know when we started this conversation where we'd end up. I you don't didn't know. know you were a selfish asshole. I didn't. I, I, was not, I, was, I was actually thinking about myself the opposite way. I, I don't know why. <laughs> but coming to that realization in real time is something that we all do every day, right? And um, I think it's okay. It's okay to be bad. It's okay to be good. We've said this before. It's the Zenful podcast. You can be all things uh, and nothing at the same time. And um, we did hear from a listener this week who... Um, who uh, shared, we asked for people to share audio, and someone did. Um, Chris Mills, he shared some audio. For, he's from Vancouver. And this is very funny for me, but it's probably not funny for you, this audio. Uh, to me, this audio is a one-line like joke. <laughs> it's a Canadian joke. It's a Canadian yeah. joke that's hilarious. And then explaining jokes is always the best thing. Yeah. I don't know if I should even reveal why I think it's funny, but um, if you're from well, he, Vancouver, he, he, you'll know. He recorded the sound of rain and in in response to our idea of computer weather <laughs> but i think yeah also it's just like 
always raining in Vancouver. If you're Canadian, your image of Vancouver is it's just it's always raining there. And it's close to Seattle, right? Yeah, it's close to Seattle. And basically yeah. through the winter, it never stops raining in the winter. It's just like and but it's not just like drizzle. It's like pouring rain. And so Yeah, I, I mean I I lived in Portland for a while and it, I think it's officially a rainforest even though it's not warm. Yeah. It just rains so much. Yeah, I think it's similar uh, in the BC Vancouver area. Anyway, so you're just gonna you're this is outside of his window, and what you're gonna hear is just pouring rain. Which it's, it's not a unique moment. It's, a, it's not a unique it's, moment, but something it's a slice of life. But something on iTunes you'd pay to you know ten ninety five to go to sleep to. <laughs> this is like free complimentary, free high quality audio recording from our wonderful listener Chris Mills. Um, yeah, thank you very much. That's yeah. awesome. And he was saying to me, just as a, a final thing, that you know he has a hard time finding the conversations we're having in Vancouver, either because they're incredibly unpopular conversations, <laughs> or because we're talking about uh, things that are, are, are a pretty narrow spectrum of people that are interested in them, but through a different lens, which is, uh, I, I took that as a compliment, something uh, made it worthwhile uh, continuing yeah. to do. So thank you, Chris. Thanks for sending this. Uh, Thank we're listening you, Chris. to you. He actually wanted to. He had. He had a topic. I'll suggest for another day uh, that he'd like us to talk about. Um, but in relation to that, but uh, yeah, keep the suggestions coming for topics. Send in your audio. And um, thanks. Thank you. See you. Uh, see you guys next time. Bye from Toronto. Bye bye. Bye from Utrecht. See ya. <laughs>